What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you got you? Kara Golden is the founder and CEO of San Francisco-based Hint, a lifestyle, healthy brand that produces the leading unsweetened flavored water and a scented sunscreen spray that's oxybenzone and paraben-free. Kara has been named among Fortune's most powerful women entrepreneurs and Forbes' 40 women to watch over 40. The Huffington Post listed her as one of six disruptors in business alongside Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg. Further accolades include one of San Francisco Business Times' most influential women, Fast Company, most creative people in business, Fortune's most innovative women in food and drink in 2015. Those are just a few of the things that Kara is tackling right now. Get ready to hear about disruption, continuing to learn, and the importance of curiosity. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. And they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great-tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor, head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. So Kara, I wish we had hit record three minutes ago because you were just (laughs) mentioning your desire and insatiable curiosity around learning. I would love for you just to elaborate on that and that overall life philosophy you have. Yeah, well, you were just asking because you you knew I was doing some lots of different things right now. And, and uh, I think that it really boils down to uh, just, just the idea of, I, I, I believe like people can find time to do things as long as they continue to be learning. When, when you get frustrated and feel like you're doing too much, it's because you're, you know, you're not in, in sort of a learning position. You're you know, maybe leading constantly and maybe you know a lot more than lots of other people do in the room or or whatever the situation is. And I mean, frankly, I think this is the same philosophy for uh, for people who are managing people. Like I always, you know, sort of joke around with people, but somewhat serious when I hear that, you know, people are hiring people on their team. I'm like, are they better than you? And, you know, especially when people don't know me and sort of know where I'm going with this question, I, I, I'm a huge believer that you should hire people that you're going to, you know, learn from and maybe being better than you is, is sort of the wrong way to describe it. But it's it's the way that you ultimately stay engaged and, and can commit to something if you really feel like you've got people on your team that are telling you things, not just doing what you're asking them to do, but telling you things that are, you know, ultimately new to you in some way, shape or form. So it's, it's sort of a different philosophy, but I think it's the same philosophy in terms of, you know, how I spend my time. I, I always want to be learning and, you know, and, and I think, you know, the more years I have in the business world, just in general, I can definitely add something to conversations, but I feel like I, I tend to 
uh, every day just look at things that I'm doing and make sure that I'm constantly learning. So then what does that day actually look like? Because it's so easy for someone leading a business to just get caught up in the day-to-day grind and all those little tasks. How do you step back for a minute and do some of these learning type activities or meetings? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's, uh, it's look, there's lots of opportunities, I think, that that come at me on a daily basis. I mean, even podcasts, right? Right. And, and so when I'm looking at sort of doing research around, you know, what do I spend my time on? Ultimately, I think it's, it's also not just understanding, you know, things like how big is their podcast or who else have they interviewed or some of the simple things or who it is that's actually doing my interview. But I think it's also, uh, you know, am I going to learn something in the process and, and have some give and take back and forth. So I think that that is, you know, a big part of my day is trying to pick out those things. And, you know, I tend to spend time on, you know, Friday looking at, you know, the next couple of weeks and making sure that it's going to be worth my time. Um, and ultimately, you know, worth, worth their time too, that I don't want to put somebody into a position where I feel like, you know, it's just a waste of anybody's time. But I think like, that's the key thing I think for any leader is just really trying to figure out how do you pick those things that ultimately, you know, you're not just going to better your business, but also better yourself in some way. Yeah, that two-prong ap- approach is really important. I'm really intrigued, though, by this beginner's mindset. And let's say you're entering one of these get-togethers with a, a lot of other like-minded CEOs and entrepreneurs. What are you doing as you're entering that environment? Are, are you prepping at all? Is there anything you just want to be open to, or are you just entering it, just waiting to see what happens? You know, it's funny. I tend to... I mean, I think this is the same with even, you know, again, sort of getting prepped for, for, you know, meetings or, or even, you know, a podcast, for example, like I tend to sort of like roughly want to know who's in the room or, or what kind of questions are going to be asked. But I think that I don't put too much, uh, you know, weight and sort of figuring out uh, like what questions are going to be asked or, or specifically, uh, you know, what a person's resume is, is in particular. It's just, are they doing something that piques my interest that's that's interesting, I think is is really the key thing. I mean, people have said to me before, I, I tend to not go to, just as an example, I tend to not go to uh, too many uh, uh, beverage conferences, which like I think when I'm talking to beverage entrepreneurs that are just getting started, they're sort of surprised. They're like, where'd you find out a lot of your information, for example? And, you know, did you go to certain beverage conferences? And I, I said all along for me, I felt like I was doing something a little bit different that was really, you know, disruptive. And, and, uh, you know, I, we started when I started hint, it was, it was, uh, you know, the first, flavored water company that was using real fruit that didn't have sweeteners in it. And so I felt like going to a beverage conference, I was surrounded by a bunch of companies that were trying to sell consumers sugar or diet sweeteners, which that's significantly different than what I was ever trying to do. So initially, I felt like the crowd was kind of trying to not really focused on health, but instead kind of healthy perception versus healthy reality. So I didn't really feel like I was going to learn anything from going. I sort of felt like I had 
kind of that crowd dialed in a little bit. But instead, I had to figure out like other aspects of the business. For example, you know, how do I, you know, logistically actually, you know, ship a case or how do I, you know, deal with, uh, you know, doing a product that doesn't have a preservative in it. And so I felt like that was where I really wanted to spend the most time. And just by networking in those areas where I was, where I went in with, with a, I'm going to go to this conference just to learn one or two things. I found that I would just start networking with people. I typically wouldn't know anybody at these conferences either, which is a whole other topic that I would just go and I just start like, you know, I'd sit down and I'd say hi to the person next to me. And, you know, I just start talking to them and telling them what I was doing. And they're like, oh, have you ever thought about this? You should really talk to this person. And, and what I found was that I would start to develop my own network and, and I would meet these people who would actually give me super valuable advice. And again, those weren't people that were in my, in my industry beverage, but they were people that were kind of giving me tools in order to be better ultimately. Um, so, so yeah, so that, that was, you know, that I think has, has continued 14 years later. That's really how I, you know, approach even these, these smaller meetings and get togethers. You know, I, I want to know kind of who's, you know, roughly in the room and maybe I have one or two goals and, you know, think like if I go there and I come out of it there, this meeting with just achieving this, I tend to kind of end up getting more out of it than I even thought going in. Anything recently or even in the past year that just really piqued your interest at one of these events that you walked away from that might have changed the business or even yourself personally? Uh, you know, I would say I would say the uh I mean there's there's a few different ones in particular. I mean, I think now I'm I'm sort of I'm at a level um where where a lot of and level is probably the wrong the wrong word, but I'm I'm in a situation where I'm actually asked to speak at a lot of these conferences, and so it, you know we've done a lot of really cool things, including you know built a a business around e-commerce for a beverage company, which is like forty percent of our overall business, which is you know unique. So people will want me to come and talk about that and like disrupting you know distribution in the beverage industry or whatever. So I find that I you know even from sitting on stage, I tend to um, be surrounded with people that are doing things in e-commerce, for example, where you know I'm learning just by sitting and listening to these people. And I tend to, you know, oftentimes I can't stay for the entire conference, but I tend to just, you know, want to, for example, listen to you know, what Casper is doing around Casper, the mattress company, what they're doing around, you know, making sure that their customers are being satisfied or, you know, are they doing, you know, in-house call centers versus, you know, keeping the, having a third party do their call center or whatever. So I feel like, you know, a lot of it is, a lot of it is, you know, truly my network that I've built up just from going to some of these, but again, not really, I think it's sort of, you know, closes with, with 
you know, my expect my expectations were met, but then exceeded just by kind of opening up and and really believing in you know meeting new people and and finding a network of people that you know were not supposed to sort of help or give me anything, and then they ended up you know doing a lot more than that. Well, just being an outsider viewing you and your company, one of the things I feel like has led you to be so successful is the openness to the outsider's perspective. And I don't know if this comes from you coming from the tech background at AOL, but it's just funny how you've been able to to dominate now with e-com and then just new ideas around marketing with Hint, and now you're expanding into a completely different product line. So has that always been at the back of your mind, just the willingness to see things differently? I think like the key thing that I saw in going into the beverage industry, and I think this is just true for like the food industry probably as well was when I jumped in, I mean, the, the sort of the, the, uh, the quick take on, on me and, and hint as a whole was, you know, here's this, you know, tech executive coming in, trying to, you know, develop a drink and, you know, they've, they've like, there's a lot of arrogance in tech and Silicon Valley. And so therefore they think they can just go and snap their fingers and develop this beverage. And I, I think I was sort of the, the opposite and have proven to, to really be the opposite of, of what that was. I was willing, again, going back to my wanting to learn, like I, I think the biggest asset that I had in the early days and, and still is, is the case today is that I walked in basically saying, I, I, you know, don't know anything about beverage. I really want to learn. And that's, and I really believe that this idea will solve a problem and this is how far I've gotten with it. And, you know, I, I can't offer you anything other than, you know, the fact that I'm i I'm a quick learner and I, I'll try not to waste too much of your time, but can you spend a few minutes minutes with me sort of helping answer these questions as much as much as possible. And some people would and some people wouldn't. But I think that so many people that I talked to in the beverage industry, when I was trying to come up with this idea to develop a drink that was using, you know, real fruit that didn't have sweeteners and didn't have preservatives in it. I mean, I, I think back on you know, trying to figure out my shelf life issues on how do I ex- get an extended shelf life for, uh, for the drink, which, you know, again, like was something that was totally foreign to me. I didn't know that I needed in order to like stay in whole foods, I really needed to have more than like a six month shelf life in, in sort of being, being able to be on the shelf in the beverage aisle at, at whole foods. And so, you know, I maybe had it figured out on how to get to, be like a six week shelf life. And so, so I was trying to figure out how do I get to a six month shelf life? And I would talk to whoever would speak to me who had had any experience in food and beverage. And, you know, even the people that were actually working on, you know, the ideation of things and and sort of production of things, I would ask, like, how do I, you know, do this product without preservatives? And they're like, you can't. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? Like, why can't you? And and they would say, well, you just can't. And so for me, I felt like I had been hearing for, you know, eight years at AOL, uh, well, you know, we're trying to do X and let's go and get a meeting with that company or that person and see if they'll help us think about things. There was never this, you can't do it kind of 
response to things. Instead, it was it was really uh, it was it was more like if there was any can't, you know, there was there was just not can't as a piece of vocabulary that that I ever heard. It was like that hasn't been done yet versus it can't be done. And so I think that that's what was so shocking to me in walking into the beverage industry that nobody would actually answer my question, like, why can't it be done? And by not answering my question, I felt like that really, you know, sort of gave me the um, kind of need to just keep asking the question and sort of, you know, hopefully not in too annoying of a way. And finally, then, you know, I'd run across not always, you know, the complete answer, but pieces of the answer. And, you know, I'd just like a regular conversation, I'd say, oh, gosh, that's really, you know, that thing that you just said now, that's really interesting. Like, why do you think that? And then I'd start to expand on it. So again, I I treated it as, um, you know, a project that I was like trying to figure out or, you know, a puzzle, right, that I was like trying to figure out. And what I was, I found that the people who had actually had experience in the industry were the least helpful because they kept defining and and frankly had defined it for themselves that something couldn't be done, which I just thought was like, you know, anything I think can ultimately be done. It's just a matter of has it been done and how do you, how would you get something done? And that's, that's just a different mindset, I think, overall. Yeah, no, I love hearing this tenacity come through and just codifying that mindset that you can do it and anything's possible. That's a major takeaway instilled in you at AOL. Were there any other frameworks or things you learned at AOL that just has helped you throughout the last 14 plus years? You know, I think also just owning the fact that, and I, I still do this today, owning the fact that we didn't really know what we were doing at AOL and sort of building the the shopping and commerce, which was the team that I was working on. It 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 was it was um, you know, we were just we were trying to figure things out. Like how do we figure out things like, you know, pop-ups on on AOL? I don't know if you remember that whole world. I mean, it was just like how what what kind of uh what kind of thinking, what kind of you know, rules-based stuff could we pick up from the retail industry? I mean, I remember when I was tasked with trying to build out this this environment for for AOL where it was, you know, again, a bunch of retailers that were sort of, you know, just online, right? They're not, there's not a physical, um, it's, it's not like a mall where, you where you know you have Nordstroms on one end of the mall and and uh, you know I used to say Barney's but sadly we can't use that one anymore but uh, you know sort of a higher end uh, on the other end of the mall because everything's you know virtual right like it's sitting in this in this pot right but the way that I thought about it was was really like why did mall developers you know, come up with this idea, you know, everywhere I went where the better malls that people wanted to go to had, you know, a higher end, you know, anchor like a Barney's. They always, you know, they always had somebody like a, you know, Nordstrom's that was, you know, a little bit um, more mass, but not as mass as like a Macy's. And would you ever have a Macy's and a Nordstrom's, 
in the same mall, well, sometimes you would if it had like enough real estate and if it was in maybe the right zip codes, but maybe you would never have a Walmart. And so I would start to try and figure out like how they actually came to those conclusions on on sort of building out the physical malls and and again like picking up the phone and talking to Westfield Mall developers I'd say like hey I'm doing something totally unrelated not competitive you know even though it ultimately it did get, become competitive many many years later but and they would be more than willing to talk to me about sort of their thinking and how they did real estate and sort of and and again I would like sit there in these meetings and take lots of notes and then come back and try and craft you know is there some sort of similarity between what I'm doing and and you know there were lots of meetings where you know it wasn't clear that it was really similar but it was it, it, I think it was, again, going back to the curiosity that I felt like I was allowed to have early on because there was no there was no race to ultimately like build out the correct mall either. Right. It was it was like, let's just go and figure it out and see what happens. And so I think like that's the beauty of, you know, walking in, into an industry like, you know, beverage too, where I think, you know, food and beverage where where the majority of people that have come up with super, super great ideas are not, are not entrepreneurs that have, you know, necessarily done this before and have ideas about like, um, you know, like they'd worked inside of Coca-Cola and they had run, you know, Diet Coke and therefore they want to go and innovate and do something totally different because, uh, you know, everybody's journey sort of made up of, what you did before and you hold on to those rules and, and it's very hard to sort of like throw those rules away based on some of your learnings. And so I think like that is what I've really learned along the way to not discount entrepreneurs that are, you know, scrappy, that are, you know, really kind of thinking and are willing to, you know, sort of put down their walls around, you know, the fact that they, you know, don't know anything and that's okay. They're, they're going to figure it out and they're going to learn. And, and, you know, again, they don't need to be the smartest person in the room and remind everybody that they used to be this executive at this company instead, like they lead with their challenge and the purpose of what they're ultimately trying to do. And, you know, I think this is true in any industry too, that that's the most important part of it. Yeah, no, that's a really fascinating point around pattern recognition and discovering little things in other industries. I just read this great article from BBC about polymaths and a lot of the Nobel laureates, and they all have these extreme focuses outside their industry, and that's helped them be able to put puzzle pieces together. And you mentioned at the start of HIT, hit almost like a puzzle piece or a project. So what was the initial mindset when you first set out? Was it just solving your own problem, or do you think you'd be able to build this to be a massive company? I never thought of it as, you know, I, I I somewhat joke when I'm out speaking that I love it when I'm talking on college campuses because, you know, most college students don't really know what they want to do ultimately, right? And I certainly didn't. And I always tell people, you know, when I'm speaking there that when I developed the the idea, I still didn't know that this was, you know, I didn't, I never said to myself or none of my friends who knew me, I, I never said to them either you know, I'm going to go develop a beverage company. And I've met people who have said to me, you know, I, 
I'm an engineer at Apple and I, you know, have been doing that, but I've always wanted to develop the next Red Bull. And I'm like, really? Like that wasn't me at all. I mean, that's, that's really, you know, for me, it was really around an issue of health. And I felt like, you know, I woke up and recognized that I wasn't as healthy as I wanted to be. And, and that for me was really kind of a three prong approach the, where I felt like I could sort of point to, you know, the fact that I'd gained a bunch of weight and couldn't lose it. And my skin had developed terrible adult acne and that I couldn't sort of get rid of it. And then also my energy levels. And I really like had been able to to solve a lot of problems, you know, over the years. And I'd been, you know, an athlete as, you know, I was a gymnast and also a runner. And I just, I knew how to sort of like exercise and take care of myself. And, and for me, it was just like, it was just this huge puzzle that I couldn't figure out exactly how to solve this problem. And so that's when I finally, you know, took a very deep dive into what I was ultimately putting in my body because I figured, you know, I'm doing what I can from an ex exercise perspective and, and there, you know, it has to be something that I'm eating. And again, like I said, it has to be, I didn't know for sure. I went to a number of different doctors who told me that it was, you know, my metabolism had slowed as you get older, that's what happens. And then combined with, you know, you had babies too close to one another and that affects it. And again, like all of this was kind of like, new learnings that I was kind of like, huh, well, why? Like, why is that? And no one could answer those questions around why. And so, you know, I've always been sort of a person, I think probably, you know, used to drive my dad crazy. I remember like little, um, the time I was really, really young where, you know, I would say, why, 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 why? And, and then, you know, he would always, you know, joke like, well, there's some things you just can't figure out. And I'm like, why? You know, I would just, I would stay on it. Right. So I've, I've always been, you know, that curious kid that just wants to know like what the answer is. And, and I think like that's, that for me was, was really kind of the, the big driver around. I could not figure out, you know, that this problem that I personally had. And that's when I switched from drinking, uh, diet soda to drinking plain water as sort of step one and saw this, you know, significant change around my skin, around my weight, around my energy levels. But there was still this problem around taste that I felt like wasn't, you know, it wasn't going to be a long term, like I wasn't happy with my choice around plain water just because I felt like it was, it was a chore that I had to you know, do every single day. I had to drink eight, eight plus glasses of water every day. And I thought, oh, I'm going to start skipping if I don't really, you know, enjoy doing it. Right. Like, I mean, I think that that's when I think a lot about consumer behavior, I think that that's another piece of it that I've always just been really fascinated with. It's like, you know, if people don't enjoy, um, you know, I'll pick on running, for example, like if you don't really enjoy running, then, you, you know, might do it for six months or a year or whatever. And then the minute that something bad happens, you, you know, get injured or whatever, then you, then you probably won't go back to it. You'll come up with reasons why you won't go back to it because you just don't appreciate, you know, sort of 
like it, it doesn't speak to you anymore. It never did. Like it was like a hassle. Right. And so that's the stuff that I've always thought about, you know, as it relates to consumer products too, that you, in order to get the stickiness, you really have to have an appreciation for, you know, the, the experience overall. And that can mean a lot of different things. It can mean, you know, in a, in a consumer product, I think that it, you know, definitely in today's day and age means taste. I think no longer can you launch a product that is, you know, I'll pick on Red Bull because I've never run into a person who drinks Red Bull for the taste. You know, they drink it for the energy, right? Or, and so, and I don't think like a product like that could be launched today. I think that, you know, if you're, if, if you've got a, you know, product that is going to do something for you, you've got like, you've got people that will do it and because they feel a need for something like that. But unless, you know, you've got a product that ultimately is speaking to that person and, and sort of, you know, something that they want to experience every single day, then I think that you, it, it's hard to maintain that stickiness. Yeah. You mentioned the joy in doing it and then also solving your own problem. I'm really intrigued though about those early days where you weren't fully forming your ideas yet of what this company would become. What did those days actually look like? I feel like we always hear about, I had this idea for a business and then I kind of did this and that and all of a sudden it became really big. What were those first six to 12 months like for you? So I had four kids under the <laughs> age of six. One of the reasons I asked which the Which is like <laughs> crazy, right? On so many levels. So. Um, so I felt like, you know, it was, it, it was interesting in, in many ways. I mean, it was so out of control. I mean, I had a babysitter who would come in during the day and, and kind of help. And so that I, you know, could sit there and, you know, find time to focus, but I also took lots of breaks and, and, throughout the day so that I could actually, you know, be around my kids. So I was running it out of my house and, you know, and it's, and, like sort of changing my garage into a place where I could, you know, have like a little miniature office because I didn't have a whole lot of space either. So I, you know, I had, I had sort of like made this sort of makeshift situation for me so that I could make it all happen. Because again, I felt like I was like learning. I was like getting some traction. I had gotten it into Whole Foods in San Francisco. And then, you know, I was starting to get it into some other places. We I decided, you know, again, I needed a babysitter to kind of help me with some of the stuff around, you know, the early days of, of my kids. I mean, they were a lot more, or at that time, I mean, they were in preschool for a little bit of the time. And then they were also, you know, when they were home, they were napping, et cetera. So I needed somebody to, to kind of be there while I was, you know, ultimately going out and delivering cases and trying to sell what I was ultimately trying to you know, create. And uh, my husband early on saw what I was doing and was just, you know, I think initially he he's was an intellectual property lawyer at, at Netscape prior to joining Hint, but he was watching what I was doing and was just fascinated with how I was just, you know, really committed to doing this because I had this purpose. Like I had seen just by changing what I was drinking to, you know, from a diet soda to plain water and then ultimately slicing up fruit and throwing it in water to change the taste. I had, you know, in six, over the course of six months, I had lost over 50 pounds, which was, you know, pretty extreme. And so he was like, you know, 
really on board with what I was saying, which was if we could actually get people to enjoy water again without sweeteners and using real fruit so people, you know, aren't feeling like it doesn't really taste like watermelon or, you know, any other fruit out there, then we could actually change health overall. So again, like it was a huge purpose. I didn't know sort of how to get there, but, you know, I enlisted him early on. And so he was, um, he was in a situation where he, he had left Netscape and, and, uh, had started a medical company, um, that he was, or actually he joined a, a founder in a medical company and was running that. And they had sort of sold it off. It was a little ahead of its time. And he saw like all the challenges around sort of medicine and health claims. And he thought like, you know, you're not making any health claims at all. Uh, you're actually just telling people drink this because it tastes better and you'll actually change people's health just by getting them to enjoy water again. And so he, you know, signed on to do a little bit of everything, including, you know, driving cases to stores, et cetera. So, so I would say that, you know, early on, it was, you know, working with my husband and, and it was, it was kind of just the two of us and trying to figure out on a daily basis, okay, what are you going to do today? Oh, I'm going to go and talk to that person at Whole Foods and see if we can get some more shelf space. I'm going to go and, you know, try and meet with this person who, you know, runs this bar company and, and see like if they have any thoughts around, um, you know, expanded shelf life again, like there, there was, it was really, you know, initially just, just trying to just figure out who can we, you know, pick their brains to kind of, you know, learn more about what we were doing, but then also, um, you know, continue to operate the business. And I think that the, the one other thing that I just wanted to say about, you know, the, the piece on, you know, being a, parent and, and, you know, people will say to me when I'm out speaking, like, you know, how do you, how did you do it when you had these young kids? And, you know, I think like the, the interesting thing about being an entrepreneur is while there's no great time to be an entrepreneur, I think that, you know, I would set goals for myself and for the company. And, and again, like in many ways, I'd be harder on myself than even, you know, a boss would be right. I was my own boss. So I could figure out if I wanted to get something done by Friday and it wasn't going to happen. I could say, okay, well, all right, I'm hoping that I can get it done by Monday. Right. And set my own goals versus like going into an office every day and actually having somebody give you a deadline for something and then you not being able to achieve it because, you know, you can't like go home and set your own schedule around like, getting back to work at night or whatever it is. Like, I think that there were like, it, it was just, it cre I created my own situation to actually make it possible. And maybe I took longer, you know, to ultimately grow the company. Um, but I felt like, you know, in, in many ways, like having young kids and actually starting a company, uh, you know, could actually be a better situation than, than actually, you know, not, you know, and, and going into an coming back from maternity leave and going into an office where, you know, again, there's the, the money side of it too, which of course, you know, is, is a big deal when you're going into an established job and, you know, you're coming back from maternity leave and you're getting that, you're not getting that when you have your own company probably. So there, there's all of that. But I think that it's, uh, 
you know, there's no great time, but just because you've had kids, I guess is my point. It doesn't mean that you can't go and do it. No, a lot of tenacity, a lot of that self-belief coming back out. When was it in the business where you and your husband realized you guys were truly on to something here? You know, probably the, I think just even early days of, of, talking to even before we were, I even had the first bottle on the shelf at Whole Foods. I feel like it was, I, I felt like I was educating the people who were stocking the shelves at Whole Foods. I mean, I think for me, I felt like, again, I had never been in, in beverage and I had gone to Whole Foods to buy my groceries. And I felt like as long as I shopped at Whole Foods, then I was going to get healthy items, right? Like I thought, even if I'm going to pay a little bit more, that was my perception that right or wrong, my perception was I'm going to pay a little bit more, but it's all going to be healthy. And there's like a, some, you know, little angel that's like watching everything that's being stocked on the shelves at these, at these, you know, healthier and better for your grocery stores. And it's all just like, Great. Right. And then I had this reality as I was talking to a lot of these, you know, merchandisers inside of and and buyers inside of, uh, you know, Whole Foods and, and other stores, too. But that, you know, they were really relying on a lot of these vendors who were coming in telling them, OK, here's my great product. And, you know, it's got you know, vitamins and it's got like no calories and it's got this and it's got this. And they were like, oh, wow, sounds great. Okay. I'll stock it on the shelves. And so it was really like a, you know, I I learned early on that there was no sort of like gatekeeping mechanism. It was really based on, you know, what the buyer was ultimately buying, you know, and how good of a salesperson maybe was in there and maybe what they're, you know, maybe in some cases where they had worked before and, and that's, that's what was ultimately getting on the shelf. But for me, like, I felt like I didn't have any of that. Instead, I had this idea and I could sort of talk about my story and the dramatic like effect of like getting rid of diet sweeteners in my life, like how that changed me and my health significantly. And so I felt like every one of these people that I was talking to at the store level were, you know, like really engaged in my conversation. And maybe it was because I was a great storyteller, but also maybe like they saw a little bit of them in me, right. Or someone they know in in me, like they're, they're starting to think about like, gosh, why do I buy something that, you know, says like, vitamin water. And it's like got at that time, it had just as many calories as, you know, a regular Coke. Like they actually, most consumers back then, like it was a brilliant name, but the fact that like it, it actually was not significant, not significantly different than a regular soda. And yet they were buying it for the name. So I would bring this kind of like, again, like have this conversation just like I'm having with you or, you know, a a friend or neighbor or family member, like, you know, gosh, it's kind of crazy that, that actually we're allowing these, you know, companies to name things like something that screams health to most people. And yet there's nobody sort of watching to actually make sure that they are healthy. And so I felt like, those kind of conversations were the ones that I was, you know, having with these buyers. And, 
you know, that was probably the first piece of, of success. And then, you know, ultimately I, I went and had, I delivered cases the morning that I was actually having my, my son, Justin, my fourth child. (laughs) And, um, and that's when, you know, they called me in the hospital the next day and they said, you know, by the way, uh, the, you know, cases that you guys dropped yesterday are gone. And I'm like, well, who took them? Like, I really believe that I, I didn't be, like, I thought, wait, someone's actually going to buy them. And, you know, I, I, I mean, that's crazy. I, I just wanted to get them on the shelf. Like, I didn't know this kind of thing happened this quickly. I was just like there yesterday and now all the, all the cases are gone. And so that's, you know, was really the thinking, um, you know, that I had, I sort of hadn't, I hadn't kind of said to myself, okay, I better sell, you know, 10 cases in the next month. And if I don't, then I'm a failure. Instead, it was like, I'm just going to put it on the shelf and see what happens. And, and, you know, and it happened really fast. And then there were so many points along the way. I mean, we've done things, you know, again, it's so much easier to say like, oh yeah, we did it absolutely correctly. I mean, you know, and, but like, there wasn't sort of this big strategy to say like, oh, let's go get it into Google and, and get really successful at Google. And then when that happens, like the rest will, you know, will happen as well. It it was really, you know, for us, it was all along the way. Again, we were open to talking to people and finding new opportunities and ultimately finding different opportunities than what, you know, other people in our industry were doing. And I think that's, you know, that's true for us too, even to this day, 14 years later. I mean, when I hear, you know, that if I hear like a festival has lots of different brands in it and, you know, we get a phone call from somebody pitching us on, oh, you should be here too. Cause all these different brands are there. I think like, I don't know, like, it's just, I mean, that's, is that what we should be doing? Should we be doing what everybody else is doing? Cause that's not really leading in my mind. That's just joining, which is fine, but that's just a different thing that we just haven't typically done. So then how do you stress test ideas today? It sounds like early on you were getting at the grassroots level, talking to the buyers of the stores. What about today when you have a new idea within hint? I think, you know, we've developed a pretty big, uh, you know, social audience. So, you know, as just as an example, we're launching our deodorant in January. Um, but we wanted to just get some, you know, feelers out there for, you know, how people would ultimately, you know, like we, I've been wearing it for the last year and a half. So it seems like it's kind of already been out there and a few of my friends have gotten their hands on it, but we really wanted it to be in the hands of people that, you know, were not my friends to get like, you know, maybe they they were following Hint, but they were able to give us some feedback on it. And and it was, um, I mean, that just happened a couple of weeks ago, and it's been great to get that feedback. So it's it's uh, so I think like that's the way that you know we will do, you know, sort of a soft launch through social just to get some initial feedback. We also have a store here in San Francisco where, you know, we'll it for especially for you know, new flavors of, of water that we're thinking about when people walk in, we'll see if they want to, you know, test it. We'll even, you know, in some cases make up a limited edition and just sell it in the store, put it on our website on drinkhint.com. So I think that, that that's also, you know, become sort of a, 
a thing and a way for us to kind of have that relationship with with the consumer that that they know to keep checking, you know, emails from us as well, that if we say that we've got something new that, you know, it's it will typically be gone pretty quickly as well. So I think that that's just a piece that is, you know, that again, like I think it's our consumers can buy our product in places like Target and Kroger and, you know, have it at places like Google and and other offices, which is great. And we want to, you know, continue to leave them lots of different options to go and purchase it. But we also know that there's, you know, lots of different flexibility. We don't have to wait for six months for a buyer, for example, to put it on the shelf or determine how much space we have or end caps or any of those things through our own site at drinkhint.com. So we are, you know, constantly looking at, you know, ways to, you know, engage the consumer. So we'll do a lot of the new tests for new products there. Do you think in in 2020 to be a successful consumer packaged goods company, you have to be owning e-commerce? You know, I think if you have a brand that really suits itself to e-commerce that I don't think, I think it's always, you know, I always recommend to people that, you know, a, one way to do it. And I think really, you know, test it in a way um, is to figure out like, d- where can you find your an audience? So, you know, I always tell people rather than investing and in actually setting up an e-commerce, if especially if you've already been in, you know, in the offline world in different stores, it's, you know, try and figure out if you can actually sell through Amazon and, and maybe, you know, get some advertising to actually allow people to know that they can purchase it on Amazon as well and and really see what the stickiness. I think that the challenge for e-commerce overall as it relates to consumer products is if you don't have a product that is that people want to um to to buy a lot of and you know replenish and then I think that it makes it challenging, right? If you have a I don't know, if if you have a product that you only buy you know, I don't know. I, I I don't have a good example, but if you like have something that somebody's only going to buy once or, you know, once a year or something, maybe it's a, you know, maybe it's a birthday, you know, weed, weed killer or something where you're going to buy like one large bottle of weed killer. And that's what your whole company is, is just like, you know, selling weed killer unless you know, if that product really works, then you're not going to need to buy it anymore. Right. Like I, I think that hanging your hat around e-commerce and spending the money to set up a site and do SEO and do, you know, is, is like, it's a lot. Right. And I think, but in the case of Hint, I mean, people are, you know, there's a lot of people who don't drink in or don't know about Hint, but the people that have found it and who, you know, like love the product are drinking six to eight bottles a day of hint. And, you know, and we can actually tell them, oh, we've actually developed the sunscreen too. We think you'll like it as well. We've developed this deodorant. We think you'll like it as well. And so we've developed this relationship from a brand perspective with this consumer that, you know, ultimately we can now get them to, you know, like we can service them to, to basically sell them other products that, we think that they've ultimately been looking for that maybe they haven't been satisfied with products in those categories. But I think it's, it's, uh, you know, companies that 
that clearly, you know, and, and, and in that case where, from a, where you have, you know, a brand where people are going to buy, you know, multiple bottles or, you know, packages like per month or, you know, every other month or whatever, then I think that you're foolish not to be setting up, you know, an e-commerce initiative. But, you know, again, it's, I always tell entrepreneurs too, it's like, you know, this idea of, of setting up a company that is, that is, uh, you know, that is a really big company or a really small company really depends on, you know, the vision of the founder and, you know, until you ultimately go and, you know, get investment or if you, you know, that sort of changes the whole equation, right? Cause then everybody's plans, you know, are dictated on everybody who's got money invested in the company. But I think it's, you know, I've met plenty of entrepreneurs who, you know, have a single product that, you know, they're selling in stores and they ask me, should I put it online? And, you know, it's, I've said to them, you know, probably not. I mean, you could put it online, but I wouldn't invest a ton of money in Facebook ads or, you know, in trying in tools or whatever to get it out there. I mean, maybe I would keep up my website and give it as an option to people, but otherwise like why, you know, go through the expense of doing it unless you really have a product that, you know, people want multiples of that product on a fairly, you know, call it subscription or call it a, you know, fairly, you know, predictable kind of pattern. I think patterns is like kind of the key thing that I, that I see in sort of successful e-commerce companies. If you think that you, you know, ultimately have a product that, um, needs to be replenished, I think that, absolutely, you'd be foolish not to start something. So you have exceptional pattern recognition now. Can you look at most brands and have a pretty good idea what their track record's going to look like? Yeah, I mean, not necessarily brands, but I could I could look at categories. I think that, you know, I can, I don't know, I think I can look at good branding and, and sort of, I can spot things. I can, I can also, you know, discuss our failures as well. I mean, I remember when we first came out with Hint, we had a clear label because we thought everything needs to be clear on the bottle. And, you know, it was, everything was clear and the fruit popped off the bottle. And what we realized is that it really wasn't so easy to see on the shelf in places like, you know, where we were selling like Whole Foods because of the lighting. And so it was like these other products that had white labels and, you know, sort of better packaging really stuck out. So again, I think it's like, you know, we've made mistakes clearly along the way. And, you know, I look at things that, you know, entrepreneurs do today. And I'm like, you know, I can sort of, I can think like, gosh, if you just made that change, I would, I would bet that, like the world would totally change for you or, or, you know, I'll look at, you know, whether or not people are focusing on, uh, you know, it it, right out of the gate. If you're focusing on places like Costco or, or, you know, kind of big box stores where you're going to get lots of volume. Like I, I fundamentally don't think that that's where, you know, people discover brands, for example. I think people need to be discovering brands, especially in consumer food and beverage products in, you know, stores first where, you know, they expect to see discovery 
places and they want to be influenced, like a Whole Foods, for example, or like a Target, for example. I think people are more open to sort of discovering brands at, you know, certain places than others. So I think that those are things that I've just, again, I've learned, you know, along the way, sometimes with our own brand and sometimes just by watching other brands. Again, I love to learn. And so that's where, you know, that's where I've benefited yeah, I would love to hear then with that insatiable curiosity, why the launch into the sunscreen and deodorant, which from an outsider's perspective just seems like completely different categories. But I don't know, maybe that's a, a complete ecosystem for your customer. Yeah, well, the fruit really is the tie-in across all of the categories, which is, you know, really what Hint is about. And, you know, we we believe that it started with taste and and of the fruit and then, you know, expanded into sort of the scent um, of the like what it could be used. Because I'm a huge believer, too, that if something also smells bad, then you're not going to get consumers to ultimately engage in it. You can't they won't love things that don't smell good. I mean, for a long period of time. Again, like there there's things that can mess them up. Like if you tell people, you know, that it's going to you know, take away an ache and pain or make you, you know, happier or stronger Then people might try it for a while. But ultimately, you know, if it's a pain, right, and not a good experience, then I think ultimately, you know, you're going to have, you're going to have a hard time keeping that consumer, especially if, if a competitor comes around that ultimately makes it a better experience in, in smell and, and, uh, and taste. So, so that was, um, but but it really, you know, again, going back to to purpose, I mean, it was it, I never thought, oh, I'm going to go develop a sunscreen next. And when I started looking at the sunscreen category, I had a, a you know, pre-cancer spot on my nose that I had been trying to sort of get rid of for years. I kept, you know, thinking that it was just a dry patch and I need to put more moisturizer on it. And finally, you know, got serious about it, went to a dermatologist and found out that I had to have it removed a couple of times and finally thought, you know, what am I doing around um, sun care? And, and I realized that I really wasn't putting anything on my face because, you know, like a lot of other women wearing, you know, foundation or some kind of makeup, I just didn't want to mess it up. Or I really believed that like the SPF and a lot of those products were enough. And, um, based on nothing other than trust that it was actually going in there. And, and, uh, when I, you know, looked around for a, for a sunscreen that, uh, speaking about smell, I mean, I felt like a lot of them kind of smelled sort of funky to me. I couldn't really figure it out. Others like, you know, made me smell like coconut. And then there was the unscented ones, which in particular, I felt like a lot of them just really smelled weird. And so I thought, you know, can I actually use our, the essence that we're using for taste, can we use that for sunscreen? And and then I started to really dive into ingredients and in sunscreens and getting, you know, a, getting educated on, on, you know, a lot of these things that I was putting on my skin that I thought, wow, like oxybenzone, you know, is, is one ingredient in particular, which, you know, we developed our sunscreen a couple of years ago, but no one was talking about oxybenzone when, we developed this. It was like a, people were talking about parabens in products, but oxybenzone was, I'd run across all this research, which, you know, really talked about the dilemma of actually approving it. 
back in you know the late 70s when it was approved that the Center for Disease Control had actually recommended that it not be approved because they were worried that it may actually exasperate precancer cells underneath the skin. I mean, that's crazy, right? Like the fact that you're like putting an ingredient that may, you know, make precancer cells grow on the skin, like you're, you're just deciding, well, let's go ahead and improve it and uh, approve it. And by the way, like, you know, since it was oxybenzone was ultimately approved, like skin cancer rates throughout the U S have, you know, grown. And so, so, you know, again, I, I started to look at like, is it, everybody blames it on the ozone? Maybe it could be because of the ozone, but could it, could it actually be because we're putting on ingredients that actually, you know, do the opposite of what we think is happening? And, and so I think the same holds true for deodorant. I mean, I, I would have loved for somebody to come up with a great deodorant that I felt like good about wearing. And, you know, there's a lot of them out there that are these natural deodorants that, that aren't bad if if you don't have an issue with coconut. I happen to be allergic to coconut, which by the way is a class one allergen. And so I kept looking for a deodorant that was, you know, a lot of people don't know the difference between antiperspirant and deodorant, but antiperspirant is um, is basically the key ingredients is aluminum that is used to block sweat. I had sort of decided a few years ago to stop wearing uh, aluminum on my skin because of not not just because of uh, of the blockage that it can create around your lymph or you know your breast, but also I'd read uh, a lot of information around Alzheimer's and and a lot of doctors who are doing research on Alzheimer's um, have said that that aluminum and can really it can really you know cause problems around, you know, dementia and memory health and potentially Alzheimer's as well. And so I thought, well, that's really bad. I mean, do I really actually need to be wearing antiperspirant? And so I stopped a few years ago and actually my own story was, was kind of interesting. Like I thought, oh, I, you know, I'm always sweating and, you know, I definitely need to wear deodorant definitely need to wear antiperspirant. And after six months of stopping, you know, wearing antiperspirant, I, I stopped really sweating. I mean, if it's a super hot day, of course I'm, you know, maybe in Florida during certain times of year, you're going to sweat, but I found that I didn't really need it and I didn't smell, um, which was, you know, something else I thought was really the issue. So, so that was really, you know, the deodorant side of this. I thought, I don't want a product that has aluminum. So this is not an antiperspirant that I was looking for. I was looking for something that, you know, smelled good, that went on right, that wasn't chalky, that didn't screw up my silk shirts, that, you know, dried pretty quickly, um, that was actually unisex, that, you know, wasn't too, you know, too, like, feminine, wasn't too masculine, was something that just anybody could wear. It was easy. It was simple. And um, so that, that was really the thinking, but just like the water, I mean, I would say from an entrepreneur perspective, like I'm not the entrepreneur that sat there and looked at the, at, looked at other drinks and thought, okay, I'm going to jump in and I'm going to knock off exactly what they've done. And, and, you know, and that's going to be my company. I've really looked at, you know, and, and frankly, given lots of opportunities for big companies in the case of, you know, even Coca-Cola calling them in the early days and saying, you guys should really go do this product 
you know, that, that for me was, you know, the person who I am, I, I wanted, I gave everybody the, you know, lots of options to go start this company and, you know, and, and they just didn't, they, I felt like there was this need, my need as a consumer to really have this. Yeah, Kara, you mentioned who you are, a disruptor, an innovator, someone who's tenacious and curious. That's why I wanted to have you on. It's so fun hearing the story and then also how you're continuing to learn, evolve, and challenge yourself. So I want to dive into a few quick hit questions. You cool with that? Yeah, absolutely. So who in the business world do you admire? So many people. Um, You know, I would say... there. There's a, I would say Greg Ren, Renfrew, I think is how she pronounces her last name, um, CEO of Beauty Counter, is somebody I really admire. And uh, I, I think, you know, when I think about her, the thing that she's done is is tackled an industry just like what I've done in, in sort of the, the beverage industry and now in personal care, but really, you know, created better products for consumers, but then also really taken her knowledge of what she's known to, uh, or what she's learned, I should say, to actually better, you know, society. So she's got a bill before Congress right now that is, um, and, and really led that effort to make, uh, make beauty products, you know, just better, the ingredients better. And I think that that is something that, you know, as I think about 2020 is, is really something that, you know, all CEOs will need to do is, is really, you know, not just make up a social mission. I I really believe in every industry, like you see something that maybe consumers don't see, right. And it's your job to ultimately help solve that problem. Right. And you can do it like, as like, you can do it with your, your products, but then I think you can also change an industry in some way. And that's what Greg has, has done. And, and I'm actually doing the exact same thing in water. I've got a, an initiative that I'm working on. Another thing that I'm, that I'm learning along the way, but, um, around clean water. So I've, I've been working tires, tirelessly around, uh, this issue of getting the lead out of our water. I've seen, you know, lots of different, I've always said to people, you know, look, if you don't want to drink Hint, then, and you drink plain water, like, you know, that's fine. I don't have an issue with you. I'm really trying to help people like drink water. And when I've learned along the way that, you know, the options for clean water are not really sort of what we think and the testing around, you know, our water supply is not really what we think. um, I thought, you know, this is crazy. And I'd start picking up the phone and, starting to do a lot more research. And now it's grown to, you know, me actually trying to create change in, you know, Congress. And we're hoping in early next year to either tag on to a bill or potentially even help develop a bill, which will make it mandatory for states to test for lead. Currently, only 24 out of 50 states actually even test for lead in the water supply. And, you know, I certainly didn't know that as a consumer and, you know, there were plenty of drinking fountains that I've sent my kids to at schools and said, you know, just drink out of the drinking fountain, not really knowing whether or not, you know, 
the pipes were good or, you know, sort of what was the supply coming from. And, you know, ultimately people ask like, well, you know, what's wrong with lead? Like I've heard, you know, lead is a problem and, and it's an issue, but I don't really know, you know, what the issue is. The scary thing about lead is that if somebody has been exposed to lead, it's, it's, uh, you know, the center for disease control, as well as the, um, National Institute of Health have all said that, you know, once you've actually had damage from lead that, you know, it's, it's really tough to, um, actually come back from it. So you're doing immediate brain damage. I mean, the center for disease control says that lead is not okay at any level. And yet our EPA is actually saying, well, if you're, you know, pipes have uh, 15 parts per billion or less, then, you know, that's fine. But the the scary thing about it too is if, if a, you know, of those 24 states, if, if a state is testing for lead and they find that it's, you know, higher than 15 million, 15 parts per billion, and let's say they think they hear it's like 20 parts per billion, there's no protocol in place to actually say, you know, what, what businesses or schools are supposed to do in any of these states. And certainly, you know, there's like, what if, for example, a school, you know, sees that there's too much lead in their school and they issue letters to the parents? What if you don't have kids and you live right next door to a school? Like, do do they have to notify you that they have an issue with the water? Currently, that is not what the situation is in most, you know, cities and states. And so, I think that, again, going back to, you know, I I would have loved for this not to be a problem and not to sort of surface into my reality. But I felt this, you know, not only need, but also responsibility to actually call them out because I basically started going in and, you know, asking and being my tenacious self and curious self of like, why, 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 why aren't we doing something? Why don't we force states to do this? Why, you know, why is this the case that, you know, everybody thinks it's okay for, you know, our water supply to be this and, you know, and yet we don't do anything about it. We instead, you know, put things like infrastructure and, you know, even like potholes and roads ahead of clean water supplies and cities. Like, I, I think that, that is something that is just, you know, criminal on so many levels. But again, I would have loved for somebody to do something about it. I'm sure Greg would have loved for somebody to do something about the beauty stuff, but we can't rely on these large companies or large states to actually show up and do something about it. No big time challenges you're tackling once again. What about consuming other knowledge? Are you a reader at all? If so, any books, blogs, articles, podcasts, things like that that you love to consume? Uh, you know, I, I read and listen to a lot. Um, I, I would, I'm terrible with names of books, but I just read a book. I just finished it last night, actually. It's called The Second Mountain. Uh, have you heard of this book? I have not. It's by David Brooks. Um, he actually, I believe he, it was a, it was a book that I was given, uh, it was, I think he may have given a TED or possibly a TEDx talk along the way. Um, and I think it was, it's possibly, I don't know how old it is. It might be a year old now, but, um, but 
it's the second mountain, the quest for a moral life. And actually it's really, it sort of speaks to, you know, what I was just talking about, about social responsibility, but it also talks about commitment and, and how you look at like, you know, people who are, you know, really committed, whether that's, you know, committed to, you know, having a family or committed to, you know, having, you know, friends or a job or, you know, a purpose or whatever, those are the people that ultimately are the happiest, right? That they, that they're, that they, you know, zone in and really focus versus people that sort of dabble in things. So finding your purpose and finding, you know, your commitment and actually, you know, forcing yourself to just get, you know, better at your commitment. Um, so it's, it's a great book and it's not sort of what I thought it was, it was ultimately, you know, going to be. And, you know, there's, again, there's stuff that I'm doing, but how do you, that, that go along, you know, I think I lead a moral life, but could I even be better right at, at doing certain things and, and being that voice for, for more of a commitment, um, getting others to commit to this as well. So, so anyway, that was, that's sort of my my newest book that I really, really like a lot. No, it's exciting for me when I get to hear a book I haven't heard of before, so I'll have to check that out. Final one, is there anything you wish you spent more time on when you were younger? You know, I find, I think it's it's something that I'm, I'm actually trying to put my kids through this exercise now, now that, you know, my at the time, less than six-year-olds are now, you know, teenagers and in in college. And, you know, I just came off of a family weekend with them and talking a lot to, I think the, the, like, don't pressure yourself to have it all figured out, but instead find those things that you really enjoy. And because I think that if you find those things, you know, and, and again, maybe it's also things that you want to commit to that, you find those things and then maybe you could actually be doing those things every single day in some type of, you know, career or job or whatever. And again, like I think just the, the, the exercise of actually committing to something and going through that process of, of, you know, spending time, you know, learning, um, going through that process is something that I probably didn't do enough of. I, I just kept thinking, you know, I mean, early on, I wanted to be a lawyer and I kept thinking, okay, I want to be a lawyer. And my brother was a lawyer. So I think I like saw my brother was a lawyer and I thought, oh, okay, he went to law school. I'll probably go to law school too. And then by the time I was a freshman in college, I was like, oops, like, I, I don't think there's any way I want to like go to law school. I ended up marrying a lawyer instead. Um, but it, it's, uh, you know, I think it's, it, in, instead, I, I couldn't have even told you why I wanted to be a lawyer. And I think, you know, again, going back to sort of the curiosity, if you, you know, instead spend time trying to figure out like, I, like if I, if I met somebody today who thought that they wanted to be a lawyer, I, I would say like, gosh, you know, you should go spend time. Like, do you know any lawyers? Can you go spend time in their office and actually ask them what they do every single day? Like why, why are they passionate about what they're doing? And maybe they aren't passionate and why aren't they passionate? Like that's, you know, are there different types of law? Like, again, sort of trying to drill down while you're sort of young and, you know, and like you have time. I also think you have time later, too. But I think just, you know, recognizing that life is a journey, but trying to figure out what you want to do, you know, 
early on is not, you know, it, it's not too young to sort of try to take steps to, to go and, you know, try and figure out like whether this might be something that you might really enjoy doing. Another excellent takeaway from this conversation, Kara, this has been a lot of fun for me. Where do you want the listeners staying connected with you at? Yeah, so I'm on social at Kara Golden. I'm pretty active on Twitter, um, K-A-R-A-G-O-L-D-I-N, but also on lots of other social channels, including LinkedIn and Instagram and Facebook. But uh, also just, you know, definitely come visit us at drinkhint.com and see, you know, some of our products. If you haven't had Hint, definitely give it a try and and, uh, let us know what you think. Kara Golden, thanks for joining us on What Got You There. Thank you so much. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.